listening to the Writers' Forum. I'm your host, Michael Tusa. Today, I'll be speaking with author Royd Anderson about his book, New Orleans Disasters, First-Hand Accounts of Crescent City Tragedy. Royd is a filmmaker, historian, and teacher, and he's produced some award-winning films about some of the very disasters we'll be discussing from his book. Welcome to the show, Royd. Thank you, Michael. Good. Look, in the book, you cover seven different disasters or tragedies that occurred in the greater New Orleans area. What uh, attracted you to this project? Well, uh, it all started in graduate school at UL Lafayette. I was, for my master's thesis project, I produced a documentary on the Luling Ferry disaster, and that was uh, the 30th anniversary was approaching. During the production of that student film, Hurricane Katrina struck. So that caused a setback with getting in contact with people. And a lot of my professors wanted me to change my major, change the uh, change the whole uh, aspect of the film and do something on Hurricane Katrina. But I stood with the Luling Ferry disaster because I knew a lot of people from my generation and younger ones didn't know much about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I told them, no, I'm going to stick to the, the ferry disaster. And that little student film caused a lot of stir in that community in Destrehan and St. Charles Parish. And it eventually led to the creation of a monument in the East Bank Bridge Park. There was no monument there for mm-hmm. the victims. So, so, that, and so the, you then went from that and decided to look into other tragedies? I did. They were always on my mind being a history teacher. Mm-hmm. I noticed that in, in Louisiana history textbooks, there's nothing about these disasters and, and what transpires because of them, like the, the safety improvements and all. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was important to de- definitely document this in film. And later on, as, in, in, as an author with the book. How did you go about, I'm, I'm old enough to remember every one of these tragedies. How did you go about getting your information for each one of them? Microfilm, a lot of research in the libraries at Loyola, UNO, uh, using the phone book, mm-hmm. old phone books, fi- reading the microfilm, reading the articles, finding out names, writing names down in a notebook. Taking an old phone book, finding the names, and, and making those calls. It's a lot harder right now because hardly anyone has a, a landline, but mm-hmm. we're talking about 2006 to, well, 2013. Mm-hmm. And it would, I, would, I would write letters, too. I'd find out addresses. That's, that's basically how I would get the interviews. Okay. With folks that were actually involved or had specific information, huh? Right. Survivors, okay. family members of the deceased, first responders. Okay. Well, you start the book off, though, with a chapter titled, A Sign from Above, and it involves the Pilgrim Virgin statue weeping. I'm not sure many of us knew about that. Tell us a little bit about that and why you started the book with that. Yeah, that was July the 18th, 1972. The Pilgrim Virgin statue was here. Uh, It was on tour. And the Father Joseph Brault, who was the custodian of the statue, witnessed the statue weeping many times. And um, the, the story went global like in Brazil there were there there were photographs taken of the statue weeping mm-hmm. 
and it became a, a global phenomena. And shortly after that, that was in a CBD. That was in a CBD on Tulane Avenue where the, the, the Pilgrim Virgin statue first wept at a Ramada Inn, which is no longer there anymore. But shortly after that, within a span of less than a year, three major tragedies occurred in the CBD. You had the Ralt Center fire. Shortly after that, like close to a month later, the Howard Johnson sniper and the upstairs lounge fire. So uh, that, I, I made that connection. I was born that week that the Virgin statue wept, July 22nd. So it's, it's, wow, this is peculiar. A little oh. synchronicity there. I remember that Ramada Inn. It was, it's odd that it would have been there. That was in kind of a, a, a rundown area uh, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the disasters that you cover because, again, not everyone is old enough to remember each of these. And, and as you point out in the book, they all had significant impacts on their different industries or things that were involved. They span the time period, if my counting is correct, of 1972 to 1999. Um, and the first one you talk about is the Ralt Center Fire. Tell us a little bit about that. How tall was this building, and what were the problems and those types of things associated with it? Well, it was, a, it was constructed in 1967. It was the first high-rise that incorporated business space with apartments in New Orleans, and that was primarily, that was, that was for the oil business, Mobile Oil and the Ralt Center Petroleum Company had their offices there in addition to apartment space and the Lamplighter Club, which was an exclusive club on the 15th floor. So you had 15 stories plus the penthouse upstairs. And uh, there were two fires that actually occurred that day, November the 29th. A lot of people don't know that, know that, but there was a morning fire that happened that was extinguished by the NOFD in the upstairs in the uh, Lamplighter Club in a dressing room. And around lunchtime, that was extinguished. Around lunchtime, around 1.30, about that time, the second fire occurred, and that was one floor below the Lamplighter Club uh, in the Ski Chalet room, which is like an office uh, a room used for office space meetings, and down the hall was the beauty salon for the Lamplighter Club. And that was a raging fire. It became a third alarm fire. Had, what floor was that fire on? That was on the 13th floor. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And my memory, tell me if this is correct, you touch on this in the book, one of the problems was that the fire department didn't have ladders that were long enough or high enough to be able to rescue anyone. Right. You could see that in the video. There was a lot of video taken at that time by, by news reporters, and they could not reach the top floors and you could see the ladies out outside of the window. They broke the window with a shampoo chair to try to get some air and they, they just could not reach them. Yeah. Do you recall how many people died in that fire? In that fire there were six. There okay. were six people. Right. Um, there was a, an attempt, a civilian attempt to rescue the women on an elevator and and some people died there. Yeah. And there was a helicopter rescue where a lot of people got saved. There were a couple of pilots that came on the, on the roof of the Ralt Center and saved many people from the Lamplighter Club. About 400 people mm -hmm. were, the death rate was really not, was, was low. There were four people, 400 people escaped. 
But then you had the six civilian, the six people who died. But the significance here after the fact is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this led to fire departments trying to address how to how to deal with fires in high-rise buildings. Right. Uh, there was controversy because they had nets. They had life nets. But for the, the, the height of that fall, the nets were... They, they would just break if, if mm-hmm. the ladies would actually land on the nets using physics. That, that was the fire department's explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, John Skurlock, who, if you go to birthday parties with kids, you see the bounce house. Mm-hmm. He invented the bounce house. A lot of people don't know that. John Skurlock from Metairie. As a result of the Ralt Center fire, he created the Spacewalk Safety Air Cushion, which is very popular. You see it around yeah, town sure. or with the stuntmen in Hollywood, if they're on a high rise or a high yeah. altitude, they jump into this big cushion and fire departments use it globally as well. <laughs> if there is a fire like that on a high rise okay. that they can safely land to. Another thing that's important culturally speaking is that the Towering Inferno mm-hmm. came out a little bit after that, the Ralts to center mm-hmm. fire, I think right. it was 74. I think that that played a significance like the screenwriter yeah yeah for our listeners a really bad movie but nevertheless a movie called the towering inferno and i think it had a like an all-star yeah, cast yeah, paul newman steve mcqueen yeah, yeah. even at oj simpson all right well let's let's move because shortly after that you have the howard johnson sniper incident <clears throat> and that was a gentleman by the name of mark essex who got up on top of the howard johnson and started firing indiscriminately did they ever determine what prompted Essex, who I think was a Navy vet, you talk about this in the book, uh, to do what he did? He, he says that he was discriminated against in the Navy. He was being picked on. Um, there were many fights. He was short in stature. Mm-hmm. He was a black man. And he got tired of it. He was actually he, he was a dental technician. He worked as a, as a dental tech. And the dentist, his superior, testified that, yes, he was being picked on and bullied, but he went AWOL. He mm-hmm. left. He was frustrated with that. He had a friend in the Navy who was more um, radical. He was with the Black Panthers, and they say he got involved with him, moved to New Orleans to to be with him. And at that time, I don't know if you remember, in Southern, in Baton Rouge, there was that shooting. Mm-hmm where a couple of students got shot by the state police and they were unarmed. Right. It was some kind of a, it was a protest and that's what just, that that's what made him go berserk. I got you. He, but, this one lasted, I mean, I remember this on TV, This his being at the top of the Howard Johnson lasted for the better part of the day, right? Yeah, almost two days. And like, then they, they gunned him down as he was kind of running from one part of the roof to another part of the roof, as I recollect. Yeah. How many people died uh, from him shooting from the top? Of the Nine Johnson? people. Wow. Nine people. Wow. Well, let's let's move on a little bit. Hey, oh, before I forget, I tried to find it before today. I remember that there was a local band. I think they were called the Thunderheads or the Thunderbirds, who did a song called "The Ballad of Mark Essex." So, if you if you're better than me, you might be able to find that. Um, in '73, we have the upstairs lounge fire. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that happened in, in June, on June 24th, 1973. And 
it was a an irate patron there at the bar. It was actually a gay on gay crime. He was he was in the bathroom. He was doing things. He was there was a peephole actually in one mm-hmm. of the um, stalls there, and he was looking at other people in there, and they got fed up with it. He got in a fist fight. They were they they threw him out. He uh, someone got into a fight with a Michael Scarborough, broke his jaw. His jaw got broken, and as he as he stood up, <coughs> this is the the number one the number one suspect. His name was Roger Nunes. He said, "I'm going to burn this effing place to the ground," and he left after that. And then within ten minutes. The, the place was on fire. Yeah. There was gasoline. There was a gas, you know, a gas can found mm-hmm. at the at the base of the stairs of the upstairs lounge. Um, the reason why the majority of the people died was because there were burglar bars on the window, like iron bars, and those were yeah. put there to prevent drunk people from falling out of the windows. But New Orleans, you know, the inspections, they haven't, they didn't check it up. They didn't check that. Um, this this is covered in another book called Tinderbox, because I interviewed the author for that. And I, what struck me, tell me if it's the same for you, is that this location was something of a metaphor for the gay community at the time. It was isolated, only one way in, bars on the windows, you know, very private. Um, and... Uh, as a result, uh, over I think 30, 31 people died. Is is that correct? Yeah, 32 people died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Bobby Fiesler well. I helped mm-hmm. him uh, with that book. Last week, we were actually in City Hall together, and he, he gave a, an excellent presentation, which prompted the city council to publicly apologize for what happened because city offic- city officials at the time did not make any public statement of sympathy for the victims. There were 32 deaths there, and it's still, they, they call the case closed, but on record, it's unsolved. There was one suspect, but he later committed suicide Right, a, a year later. He mm-hmm. got married, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they never, it seems like they didn't do much to investigate it. But it was also, when we talk about some of the effects of these disasters, that's generally seen, I think, as one of the pivotal moments for the gay liberation movement, right? It was. I mean, there there are many people who, <clears throat> who that was close to Stonewall, mm-hmm. and that that got the the gay community together to actually uh, respect their loved ones who who were not being represented in the papers, by the press, by the politicians. They were just being snubbed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were there were articles, but they were. They were described inhumanely. Uh, just, just the fact that a politician like is not even going to make a comment, a public mm-hmm. statement, and that led because the Ralt Center fire also was that it was a few months before that. That led to the establishment of sprinkler systems all over the country, the Ralt Center, and then you had this fire at the upstairs lounge. We became the first state to enact sprinkler systems that they are mandatory in high-rise buildings. Louisiana was the first state because of these tragedies, like the Ralt Center and upstairs. Well, let's, not to give short shrift to that, but let's move on. The next thing you cover in the book is the Lewin-Felry disaster in 1976. Um, Again, 
for folks that may not be familiar with that, you point out in the book, this is the, the first instance where there was a $1 million jury verdict um, in Louisiana. What caused that accident? What caused the accident was the pilot of the, of the ferry, the George Prince, he was drunk and he cut right in front of the ship. The ship was, was going upstream and the, the ferry passed to its right, cut right in front of the ship. 77 people died. There were some legal ramifications and explanations. Actually, the ship, the, the ferry had the right of way at that time because mm -hmm. he was passing to the right of the ship. And because of that disaster, now ships have legally the right of way, like ships that weigh so much heavier and are, are much harder to stop. They have the right of way. And also, pilots are now subject to random drug and alcohol testing. Wow. And you mentioned this when we were talking earlier about how you got into the project. There's now a monument in Edgard that uh, you were involved in helping set up. Exactly. Yeah, there, well, the one in Edgard was actually put up in 1981 or 80, I believe, and that was uh, done by Daniel Bagnell Jr., who was one of, the, one, of the, one of the lawyers who represented many of the victims' families. He was running for DA at the time in St. Charles Parish, and he wanted to place that monument in front of the courthouse in Hanville, which is in St. Charles Parish. This is where the disaster happened. But a lot of the, the cronies in St. Charles Parish who were against him said, well, you know, this, this is going to affect the election if he does this. And they wanted Morrell, their, their friend, right. to get elected. So they told him no. They gave him an excuse. They said, well, this is going to be too, uh, we don't want to think about this tragedy. We don't want this this memorial, so he had to go way out there in St. John Parish and put it in Edgard, which is about 30 miles away from where the disaster actually happened. And I interviewed Daniel Becknell Jr. for that documentary, a little student film. He said, you need to talk about this. So I did, and he, he explained it and all, and, and that caused a big stir in St. Charles Parish because the kids I taught there a little bit shortly after that, and the people in the paper, uh, the the citizens didn't know about that mm -hmm. and it caused a stir and eventually in 2009 they they did put that memorial up at the east bank bridge park okay all right i didn't realize that all right and, and becknell was encouraged a little bit by the judge who had the case right i think you make this point in your book that to do something oh yeah yeah definitely the judge made the the process the lawyers pay for part of that monument in edgard mm -hmm which they did, and it's still there today. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's move on. The next disaster you cover is the Continental Grain Disaster, uh, the Continental Grain Elevator Disaster in 1977. How did this happen? I mean, how does a grain elevator blow up? That, yeah, that, that happened in 1977, December 22nd, right around close to Christmas time. Mm -hmm. Another disaster on the Mississippi River. You just had the Luling Ferry Disaster, not, you know, about a year before that. But what a lot of people don't know is that grain dust is a lot, is very volatile, about 100 times more volatile than coal dust under the, under the proper conditions. And it was a very cold day. That was a really cold winter. They say it was the, the coldest winter 
in 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 America, but they they say that maybe a spark, uh, a spark caused the explosion. Maybe someone's machinery flared up, and that caused it. There there was an accumulation of dust in the in the silos. Right. Definitely, they could also maybe static electricity because it was so cold. But because of that disaster, now there's many heat sensors placed in these grain elevators. So in case a machine does overheat, they automatically turn off. Okay. How many people died in that explosion, do you know? 36. Wow. 36. Wow. And there were many offices on top of the explosion happened near the silos, and the offices were very close to the silos, but now because of that, many many people were there like on their, they had the day off and they were there just to collect their Christmas turkey, which was a gift from the company. And they went inside the office and you had that explosion. They've now moved the headhouse in a more remote area. So if a, an explosion does occur in these silos, it's not gonna fall, it's not gonna land and explode near the the offices. Wow. Well, that brings us to the 1982 Pan Am crash, uh, which I certainly remember well in Kenner. Um, can I get you to read an excerpt, perhaps, from your book that relates to that? Yeah, this is um, from Evelyn Porsche. She was, and she still is, is living in the neighborhood where that happened. And she was outside in her backyard and she actually witnessed the plane falling. I'm going to read a little excerpt from that, if you don't mind. Yeah, go right ahead. Evelyn Porcho bore witness to a terrifying sight she and her Roosevelt subdivision will never forget. Evelyn observed, and I quote, When I came out here, I was brushing on my two dogs. I could hear the trees crackling, and the plane was sputtering, like it couldn't get the motor revved up. I guess he was gunning it. It was just confusing. And when I looked up and heard the trees back here and the plane, I knew something was wrong. I was at the end of my patio, and I looked up and saw this huge piece of metal. I didn't realize it was that close to me, but then I realized the plane was falling and was on the left side. Wow. And... If my memory is correct, and you talk about this a little bit in the book, the cause of this crash was something that we didn't know much about at the time, wind shear, right? It's wind shear. And what, what has happened since then uh, that, that to try to address that problem? Wind shear, that happens a lot during hurricanes, thunderstorms. This plane took off during a thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. Now you don't, planes do not take off during thunderstorms. But it is a huge vortex of wind that pushes pushes downward and it pushed the plane to the ground shortly after takeoff. Now, because of this tragedy, Doppler radar has been placed in commercial jets that can detect these wind shears that are in the area. Actually, the wind shear detector on the runway, the east-west runway, runway 10 at the time, wasn't working. It was vandalized. They, they had vandalized it with gunfire, some hunters, they, they claim. So that's another reason the city of New Orleans owns that airport. Mm -hmm. We're talking about things that haven't been checked up. Let's look at the upstairs lounge fire. They didn't check up on the fire code with those burglar bars and things like that. Then you had 1982. 
you didn't the 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 wind shear detector was not working was not functioning for over a year wow how many people died in that crash 153 eight people on the ground six of them children wow and no one in the plane survived right no one wow now finally the last disaster you talk about is probably one that may not be as well known the mother's day bus crash in 1999 and tell us about that one that occurred the the majority of the the victims were from the saint john parish it was the bus was taking off from laplace to bay st louis to casino magic and most of the the passengers there were elderly they were from a um, uh, a community like a residential area there and the, the it was the Place du Borg Place du, Place du Borg and what happened was as as the bus was riding close to it was on the I-10 close to City Park on I-610 the driver Frank Bedell we don't know what happened he he must have had some kind of um uh, health issue and he steered off the road it looked like he steered off the road there was a green car and his that had maybe that was in front of him or something and what they think happened is that he had some kind of a he had kidney dialysis the day before mm -hmm. and he went off the road and nose dived into a ravine there there was a golf cart path that was constructed underneath the bridge there in City Park close to Pan Am Stadium and seat belts were not required at the time there were no seat belts on this bus so many people there the, the deaths were horrific I mean there were 22 people 22 lives were lost and there were very um, uh, I mean th there were decapitations oh, it was goodness. yeah and some some one of the results of this is that is if I remember correctly um, is health checkups for bus drivers, uh, DWI checks, things of that nature. Right? Yeah, because he was also, they, they found marijuana in his system, and he was on kidney dialysis the day before, so now it's mandatory to have a, a federal screening, health screening, if you are a commercial bus driver, and now seatbelts are mandatory on these buses. There is no uh, memorial there, though, near City Park. There is one at the Place du Bourg in Laplace, but I'm, I'm trying to get a memorial there, and the victims' families are as well. I'm, I'm in discussion with the CEO of City Park, and they say that, well, once their master plan is complete, we can address that. But I'm still waiting. I'm not getting a, a, a definite response on when this is going to occur. But I think that was the worst vehicular accident in Louisiana history. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a little walkway for bikes, bikers, uh, on Zach Taylor Drive, that th mm -hmm. would be perfect for a memorial there, and it would not cost City Park anything. I could fundraise for it. Wow, Roy, this has been fascinating. Un unfortunately, it's all the time we have for today. Um, you've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm Mike Tusi, your host, and I've been speaking with Roy Anderson about his book, New Orleans Disasters: Firsthand Accounts of Crescent City Tragedy. Roy. Um, is there a website or a book signing or anything coming up like that that you can tell us about if people want to get more information? Yes, you, there are on Facebook, um, New Orleans Disasters. You can find that on, on Facebook as well, First Hand Accounts of Crescent City Tragedy. You can 
on Facebook, find myself. Next Saturday, which is the 40th anniversary of Pan Am Flight 759, July 9th, there will be two screenings of the documentary free and also a book signing in conjunction of my new book, New Orleans Disasters, at 9.30 at the West Bank Regional Library in Harvey. That's Saturday, next Saturday, July the 9th, that same day. There will be one at 1.30 at the East Bank Regional Library in Metairie on uh, West Napoleon. And in August, Wednesday, August the 3rd, there will be a book signing at the East Bank Regional at 7 p.m., and then on August the 10th, there will be one at 7 p.m. at the West Bank Regional Library. And these, the different dates that you're giving for folks that may not have caught it the first time, they can look you up on Facebook and you'll have some of these things written down? I will. Definitely. Okay, great. Roy, this has been great. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.